Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our first part of our mini-series, which is Property News. We're going to be bringing you a new Rodcast episode every two weeks, discussing with a guest the latest news stories involving property. And today, my guest is Alicia Barlow. So uh, me and Alicia met a couple of years ago now. She came on a property business retreat that we do every October with myself, Adam Lawrence and Sue Sims. And she now also hosts the Partners in Property Manchester networking meeting that happens once a month, which is a fabulous event for anyone looking to network in and around the Northwest. Welcome, Alicia. Thanks for coming and joining me today. No problem. So do you want to give everyone a bit of uh, background as to who you are and what you do? I know I've kind of briefly mentioned some of the stuff. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. So I'm a qualified accountant, but I'm not practicing anymore. Um, I have a property portfolio that I started professionally back in 2018 um, and I've grown that organically just through word of mouth and having a good reputation in the northwest meeting people and then solving a problem that they have with their property and whether that be the worst house on the best street that's usually kind of the mo I look for so everything that I have is in high quality areas high caliber tenants uh, by to lets and we have one HMO on a lease uh, a long lease uh, with the NHS as well so that's just what I do. Um, we've been buying asset-backed businesses more recently from a cash flow, flow perspective, just because the buy-to-let numbers at the moment don't seem to stack as well as they used to. And we're not one to sit on the sidelines and watch the world go by. So I like to be busy and doing what we've decided to change tact and start to do. Well, you certainly are busy. And well, that sounds like you're the perfect person to be hosting a networking meeting as well. You, you <laughs> All those things. So, yeah, fantastic. And thanks so much for coming on. Um, I guess let's start with a news story that came out. It might have been just made our two-week kind of limit, but it was about the most expensive home that has gone on sale in the UK. And that is the home, spelled H-O-L-M-E in (laughs) Regent's Park. And it's gone on for the, well, crazy price of a quarter of a billion pounds. So offers over. <laughs> offers over. Sorry, yeah, of course. <laughs> so the stamp duty on that, if it's a second home, which to be honest, it's likely going to be. Looking at the people that around the world that are going to yeah. afford that, forty-two million in stamp duty. So next time you think you've got a lot of stamp duty to pay, <laughs> just consider the forty-two million that's got to go down for the SDLT. I just wondering about the moving costs as well. <laughs> <laughs> I never considered that. Two bedrooms? Yeah, 40 <laughs> bedrooms. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to get some kind of couple of lorries it's going to take, isn't it? Doing a few trips to get the, the beds in there. Um, so this is owned by a Saudi royal family that have had it. Well, they are obviously the beneficial owners because it's owned through many an offshore vehicle. They've owned it since 1980s. And this will be the most expensive, assuming anyone buys it, that is. A second most expensive was number two to eight Rutland Gate, which was sold for 210 million in 2020. And incidentally, is on the market again now. So 
What I find interesting about this is often these kinds of properties, these trophy assets, go on sale when the market is at, at its peak. Now, arguably, are we at our peak or are we a bit off it because prices have started to come down? And the thing I'd say to that is this market, i.e. prime, I wouldn't even call it prime London, I'd call it prime globe. I mean, if you look around the top kind of prime cities around the world, this is going to be up there with kind of the top, I don't know, oh, yeah. probably the top 10 properties around the world buy. So they look at different environments and the likely bar of this will probably not be a Brit and actually, when you start to look at some of these prime prices, they're actually a bit lower than they were in 2015, especially when you kind of adjust for inflation. And then you start to look at the exchange rate. And actually, if you're buying in dollars, really, you're getting about a 50% kind of reduction in price as to what you yeah. were in real terms going back, I don't know, seven odd years. So there is an argument to say that a quarter of a billion pound property in Regent's Park is cheap. I'm not sure I'm going to push that front, but what are your thoughts on that, Alicia? I think, well, I think what was interesting in the article was that it was saying that the market for this, the max is 20 families in the world, and there's only one UK-based, and that's Nick Candy, and I think he's already been to view it, with mm. his, from recent fame, wife, Holly Valance, of Neighbours, and the very lucrative song oh. Kiss Kiss from the early noughties. From Ramsey Street to Regent's Park. God, what a, that, you, that's going to be made into a Netflix series, surely. <laughs> yeah. Against all odds. I, I bet Toadie's gutted. That's um, why I didn't pull him off a cliff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's an interesting one. Yeah. Next story I want to talk about is slightly more kind of probably relevant for me. Unfortunately, I'm probably not going to be buying a £250 million <laughs> House and Regent's Park anytime soon. Yeah. And this one is about EPCs. Now, mm -hmm. if you're like me, you're probably a bit bored of hearing about EPCs. It's yeah. all you seem to have heard about for the last few years. But some research came out recently from a firm called Carbon Laces. Now, they analysed the actual energy performance of 17,000 homes in the UK and what they actually found was that the EPCs overestimate the energy use by up to 344%. So what that's basically saying is the EPCs are not fit for purpose. They're far too conservative. And actually, do we all need to panic about retrofitting our Victorian houses to a C from a D? Because there's a big argument here to say that actually the reality is, it might say it on the bit of paper, but when we've analysed the actual energy use, it's not actually needed. And what they found was the further down the list you are, i.e. the closer you are to the Fs and Es and Gs, the actual, the bigger the difference is compared to where you're up at the top. So I think that's incredibly interesting and relevant, certainly for me. And it's really made me kind of think, do you know what? Am I going to hold off a little bit on some of the programmes of retrofitting that we had in the pipeline and wait to see what the government does? Because, to be honest, they've been promising a change in how EPCs are calculated for, well, years now. And it, and it hasn't come because still we've got things like electric boilers and are not actually assessed properly. I mean, don't get me started on how ridiculous it is for new builds as well. I mean, we've done new yeah. builds where you can have 
some windows, for example, one might have a lower U value than another, but actually the one that's got a specific certification from an independent body will get ranked higher regardless of the U value. And that's all because they're sort of worried about corruption. So, I mean, it's not really a fit for purpose way of analysing sort of the energy performance of a building. But at the moment, it's the best we've got, unfortunately. So what are your thoughts on on this new story, Alicia? I mean, EPC already is a massive bugbear of mine, and I could go on about this for hours. Um, and we and I have first-hand experience of different, I suppose, different negative experiences. So first and foremost, I know even though the government as a whole, central government, aren't offering any grants, some local authorities are. And what they're saying is, is if you can prove you spend your three and a half grand, they'll give you your B rating. It doesn't matter what you do. They will just give you that B rating. Rather than so, actually will take you off the list and you won't have to do it. No. They're just going to buy about the rest. Just spend the money, prove you've spent the money, show us what you've spent the money on, and then we'll give you your B rating. But then not only that, you have the same EPC assessors in the same local authorities who are going around producing reports that I'm looking at when I'm looking at buying some of these two, three-bed terraces. And one particular port, I, I spat my brew out because it said on the top it had it had a wind farm on the roof. That's what it <laughs> said on this report. And I'm, I like, did a double take and I thought, surely I've read that wrong, went back and it's like, no, he has visibly seen the wind turbine on the roof. This was a two-bed terrace in the middle of a terrace street. That is crazy. On, There's on no the, one checking that. There's, I don't think anyone is accountable to this. This, this is the point. There's no overriding body that's saying, actually, that has made the right decision on that. Is, just there, is, it, is there any wonder when you pay 50 quid for an EP yeah. assessor to come yeah. over, spends 10 minutes, assumes everything? And yeah. goes, well, of course. I mean, unless you can pay them for the day to be in there and kind of look in the cavity wall and drill a little yeah. hole to... And all due respect, I mean, you can go on an EPC course and become an EPC assessor in a day, 250 quid. With all due respect, that you know, if I'm doing a professional job, it takes a bit longer than that to do. Of course. I mean, not having a go at EPC assessors, by the way. I'm just saying that if you really want to understand your building and how it's performing, you they need to be there for a little bit longer than sort of 10, 15 minutes wandering around. And they yeah. need to have access to some of these points, i.e., the yeah. insulation, which is the big one. So, yeah, I mean, one of the bits of data that came out in this report was that the average metered gas and electricity use for all the properties studied, so that's 17,000 properties, was 125 kilowatt hours per square meter a year, which is 91% lower than what their EPCs claimed, mm. which was 239 kilowatts per square meter per year. That, that is ridiculous like how far off that is so yeah i hope that the government actually looks at this report yeah. um, and takes it into account because it doesn't seem like what is going on is fit for this so yeah interesting i found that one really really interesting mm -hmm. so from epcs to a public company listed on the stock exchange a reit so this is home reit the crisis at Home REIT is escalating now. So if you don't know what Home REIT is, Home REIT is a real estate investment trust, which was set up to provide housing for the homeless. And what they essentially do is, in layman's terms, is they get properties 
that are leased to housing associations or charities or organisations who provide housing for the homeless. So part of the issue here, there's a, there's a few different issues here, and we, we might go down a few rabbit holes, but <laughs> essentially what has happened is in the last few days we've had, well, it's all been released in the news, but it's been going on for a while actually, since around Q3 of last year, there's two of their tenants, which are, I think it's Lotus Sanctuary and Next Gen, Gen Live UK. Now, they make up 18% of HomeReach's rent roll. So it's a big proportion of their rent. Now, these two companies are going into voluntary liquidation at the moment. The reason why that's happening is because they are, when they apply for funding from the government or to get the rents that actually they can be paid by local authorities. What happens is they're going after exempt rents. What that means is they these rents are not tracked to LHA and actually it's for people who need support in those houses. So the idea is they have to be providing a certain level of support and care to those people. Now, what's happened is a few local authorities have knocked back those two tenants, their request for those exempt rents has meant they are unable to collect enough rent to pay the rent on their properties to home REIT. Now, in conjunction with that, there's also another issue where other tenants of theirs, so other kind of charities, housing associations and organisations have complained to home REIT that actually in their leases, home REIT are responsible for certain upkeep of the fabric of the building, and that has not been done. So they have withheld payment. So there are several now massive court cases going on or litigations going on about this. And Home Reach trading, uh, well, was was stopped, I think, well, back at the start of the year, actually. I'm not even sure if it's, if it's continued. It's currently share prices trading 67% below their net asset value, and the idea of a net asset value is what it would, you had to sell those assets. Now, I'm always a bit dubious about asset value for public companies because it very much depends how you value those. Now, if in something like this, in a commercial kind of space, you would you would value it on the reliability of the future incomes. So you'd look at the lease length, you'd look at who's behind the lease, who's paying the rent, what's their balance sheet like, what have you. Interestingly, GenLive UK was only formed in 2020. So it's only a two-year-old company. So, I mean, it didn't have a huge amount of backing, although the balance sheet wasn't too shabby. But, I mean, to have that one that I think had over 12% of the rent roll of home rate, I mean, that's a big bet. So I just found that incredibly interesting. And then you've got this other issue, which is they have a colossal amount of debt I think it's about eight billion of debt home re across the board. And that's at a pretty high loan to value. Now, the problem that they have is the majority of that is on variable tracker type rates. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that's been rising and rising. And I think it's Scottish widows that have quite a big chunk with them. Now, they are very concerned because what do Scottish widows do? Do they go, right, we're going to take back these properties then what happens to the vulnerable tenants inside? Yeah. They're not going to want to be known as the kind of the lender that took back properties and kicked out vulnerable tenants. And I know there was a quote actually on one of the articles 
from Homereach saying end users will not be affected, but then it was the wording was very specific. It was by the liquidation of these two companies. No, it won't be, but it might be affected by actually the bank pulling back the, the uh, loan. So, the Scottish yeah. widows, and this then creates a problem for the industry actually, because now lenders are suddenly thinking, hmm, do I really want to lend to these types of tenants and leases? Whereby, if this does happen, which I don't know, three years ago, everyone probably thought, no, that'll never happen. It's yeah. suddenly starting to happen. Are they? How are they going to recoup? So what's going to inevitably happen is lending is really going to tighten up here. Um, this is causing other kind of chain reactions within the industry because anyone involved in kind of trying to sell properties, trying to get leases with these types of tenants, everyone's waiting on these court cases because these tenants don't want to take on new leases until the court case has been done and hopefully it's been found in their favour from their point of view because they don't know if they're going to be able to actually keep to those. Um, so it's causing a huge, huge issue throughout, well, the the whole industry of exempt rents, which have been in the press a few times because they've always been seen as slightly corrupt in terms that people will, or organisations will, will do their best to get these exempt rents turbocharge the income and then securitize that so that you could be buying a property for i don't know argument's sake a million quid get the lease sorted do it with exempt rents that income is supercharged on a 25-year lease and then sell that off for a much lower yield the next day yeah <clears throat> so what are your thoughts on this one alicia how do you think this is going to play out and what kind of implications do you think I mean, holistically it goes back to what we were talking about the institutionalization of that because ultimately the control is currently sat with the home reach and is it not that scottish widows come in and take back control of that of that situation because what else can they do at that point you know like you say they've got an option they kick the tenants out and they take back control of that of the asset but it would make more sense to me if that was me looking at that from my business and saying, well, if I take control, then is there an argument to say that that could then be held under a Scottish widow's well, well, umbrella? That is a very interesting yeah. point in itself because it just so happens that the other investors in Homebury or the larger investors um, have approached the very person that brought light to this, who is the short seller, mm -hmm who brought light to this last year of what was happening because they were saying that actually you're not maintaining the, the properties, you're not providing the element of care and support, therefore you shouldn't be getting exempt and really kind of called it how it went. Um, they've approached them to see if they will take control, which is very interesting. So I forget the name of them, but it's it's all quite dodgy because actually they are one of the biggest investors in the company that launched home Re in the start so there might be a bit of conflict of interest there so yeah it should be quite interesting to see how that plays i mean they said they would do it as long as they kind of get free reign so i mean it's going to take the debtors and the investors all to kind of come to an agreement there but it, yeah very interesting one if you are in that space kind of supported living well care in general as well it's always a tricky one because if this was any other kind of um i don't know reap with a commercial element it's quite easy but you always look back at what's the bricks and mortar price and i think that then comes down to what's the use class of these actual individual assets if it is residential with an element of care 
then that's going to make it a bit trickier. And you might find that net asset value is not quite what it says on the balance sheet when it comes to reality. If, however, they are the use classes are of, I don't know, care, then that's quite different because then, okay, what are the options here? How can it be repurposed? Or who is underwriting the income to these housing associations and charities? Is that the government? Is it the local authorities at the moment? How likely is that to change? Really, really interesting space here. So I think we'll be hearing a lot more of that as we kind of, as time goes on, really. But yes, so on to next story. Well, this one is about mortgage prisoners. So we've heard an awful lot about mortgage prisoners since Grenfell with the cladding issues and things like that. What we haven't heard that much about is mortgage prisoners from the GFC, who, or even a bit later than that, who got these mortgages when lending criteria was far looser than it is now. And they've been on tracker rates and some of them are paying kind of upwards of 8% and they just cannot afford to keep up these payments but they can't refinance because they might not have the income now, they might be retired, the affordability ratios are very different now than they were back pre-GFC. What's your take on this one, Alicia? It's something we're seeing quite a lot from sort of the only occupiers that contact us to buy property and really the only route for them that they see is them moving out. And we actually saw a gentleman, we never ended up buying the property, but this gentleman was considering moving into a HMO that was his option this guy was in his 80s mm-hmm. um and his wife had passed away he was obviously earning a pension it just wasn't enough to cover his energy bills and his food bills and and we felt awful for him but we just weren't in a position to pay what he needed to release him from that mortgage no mm-hmm. matter how we structured it um and he was struggling to refinance because of his age as well yeah um, yeah Even if he could have got a better rate or a better term that wasn't available to him. So he was looking at effectively putting it into auction and and moving into a HMO. And and that's my experience of that. I mean, it's luckily I don't have that much experience of the mortgage prisoners because I think it is quite upsetting for me. I'm a people person. I I like to know that I I get that win-win when we make a transaction happen. It's a win-win. And in that situation, there was just almost no way we could help him. Um, and he was he was just a victim of circumstance at that point yeah exactly and i know the london school of economics has has had this a report done recently which i think was funded by martin lewis the uh, money saving expert and it looks at what some of the ways in which people who are in this situation i know there's over 200,000 at first count so that's probably not including a lot of other people that are affected by it and they are looking at uh, have spoken to certain lenders as well to ask them actually because the rules on lending now are down to the bank they they have been loosened a bit to give the banks more control and it's really about their whole portfolio of loans so some of those lenders have come back with some positive chat in terms of they may lack some of the rules and regulations for individuals if they approach them but yeah this seems to be a work in progress so i definitely encourage people to maybe keep an eye on that money saving expert website in terms of that if they are affected but yeah it's certainly a big issue at the moment but things do seem to be moving now and the government does seem to be acknowledging that this is an issue working out some scenarios whether it's going to work for everyone who knows so on to another story then we hear a lot in the press 
the vilification of landlords. I don't know, we're probably about as popular as traffic wardens, aren't we? <laughs> However, I don't know if it's just me. Maybe I'm, very, I'm not usually called a glass half full kind of guy, but I have been seeing a few articles recently that seem to actually go into the reasons why rents are rocketing up and not just down to landlords kind of being greedy. It's actually down to other things like tax, regulation, obviously interest rates is going to be one. What's your thoughts on this? Am I head in the clouds really kind of praying that everyone suddenly <laughs> likes the landlord or am I, is it still the same? Are we still the villains? It's difficult to say. I think it doesn't matter what you do. I think society at the moment feels they have an opinion on everything, even if they don't understand or have any experience of it. I think that's just the way we are. And I think with social media and with the news and everything's at the click of a button, you can be halfway around the world in five seconds. I think everything, the world is becoming smaller. Everything is becoming more open. So I think all this stuff that probably did get said behind closed doors between families before is now sort of broadcast publicly for all to hear. And I've had certain people say certain things to me who don't even know me on Facebook about how I must be a greedy landlord that wants to make loads of money. And when I kind of shot back with, well, this is taxpayer invested money that I've got here that I've earned for myself. So, you know, unless you've got anywhere else to live, then you know I'd like to invest it to make the house nice so you can move in. You know, and he didn't really know what to say to that. So. And I can attest to the fact that <laughs> Alicia is not greedy because when we did the retreat, I always made sure I sat next to her because she wouldn't eat all of the three course meals every night, which I gladly picked up the slack for. Um, no, I'm not a greedy, but I do, what I do find is it doesn't matter what you do. Someone will always have an opinion and whether that's negative, positive, you know, I'd say the majority of the people I speak to is positive and especially with our tenants. Like I have a very good relationship with all our tenants, even though I'm sort of aloof from that and we have a letting agent dealing with everything. I'm very aware of what's happening in the business. You know, I'm setting my rents each year. I'm reviewing the business holistically. And I'm, I also consider the situation of the tenants and what their positions are. And I think, you know, we were in a very good position last year where we fixed our mortgages for the five years and we fixed sub 3%. So I wasn't in a flat from from September to increase my rents massively. So what I said to the tenants was, is I'm in a position where we, we do need to put the rents up and that's the annual thing that we do. But knowing what's happening and coming over the next few months with your energy bills, I want to kind of share that with you. And I won't be putting them up until April 23. Mm. Um, because what the last thing I wanted was them paying me more rent, but not putting the heating on and causing me all sorts of other issues from a there cost of maintenance perspective. Yeah. So I've just kind of taken that holistic view and thought, let's work with them. You know, they know we're people. They know I've got a young family. They know I'm a local girl as well. I'm I'm just around the corner. And if I think if you can personalise it in that way with your tenants, then, you know, I think you've got a fighting chance. It well, mean, the know. issue is, oh, <laughs> oh, all these decisions by government in, with legislation and regulation and tax mm. going to remove the personal touch from smaller landlords like ourselves because really the only people that might end up being able to play in this are those more institutional style landlords so that's a factor i think i think half the problem is under the general public understanding the root causes of this so some of the details that have come out i can't remember which body it was that said there were two hundred and fifty thousand less 
homes to rent than there were, I don't know, two years ago. But there's been an English housing survey have come up, have redone the numbers, and it looks like half a million rental homes have actually been lost from the private sector since 2018. So that's a massive amount there. So, and then what we're seeing is, right, well, that's stock down. Demand from renters has also shot up. So that's up by 78% above the normal average. And that's according to Zoopla. So those are very worrying. Now, lots of people think, oh, well, that's great. Let's get these kind of the, the private rental sector to sell up and then we can all buy our house. But the reality is that people who are renting are not always in the position to buy. And the other problem is when you're renting a house, on average, there's far more households in one unit of rental accommodation than there are when it's an owner-occupier. So you might have a four-bed house rented out to a family of six or seven but actually, if you go to sell that, that's only going to, on average, the occupier is going to be about half that. So actually, often they're underutilized. So that's a big reason why that doesn't always happen. And people, a lot of public kind of assume that's how it all works. I mean, what I think, do you I think you're fine at the moment as well. Like a lot of the people I speak to who are between houses, so maybe just missed the boat and had sort of a mortgage in September, October that fell apart. You know, everyone thinks they're an investor. So now they're all saying, well, I'm going to rent for six months and see where the market is by the summer. So they want to kind of make some money on this on the back of this now. And they're thinking, well, let's see when the interest rates calm down and we'll go again. So some of these are actually voluntarily renting in between houses, don't want to move back in with mum and dad. Our mum and dad aren't in the country anymore or live further away or they've moved away for work. So there isn't it's not it's not capable for them to move back in with mum and dad because they've got young kids and a dog and all the stuff. And it's just not practical. But then you've got the other people who are just generation rent. They like to rent because they have the ability to move around for work. And as we were saying before, the world is getting smaller and people are able to move to work more easily and that's just what they like to do and my husband works with people who do that in construction all the time you know they never live in one place so they rent wherever they go to the next job they'll just find somewhere to rent and that's what they do they just hop around yeah I think it's interesting to look at some of the figures here so ONS said that rents had gone up in the last year by 4.4 percent but that's all rents so We know the average rent is four and a half years. Most landlords don't put up their rents annually. They only do it when someone moves in and out. But actually, Homelet has a great rental index, and that's of new rents. And actually, that shows that it's gone up by 10.2%. So around where inflation's at. So it's high, but it's within inflation. But if you start to look at the costs incurred by landlords here, if you were on a three and a half percent mortgage last year and you've had to refinance now and you're lucky enough now to get a 5.25 percent mortgage and that is i mean that's a good rate now yeah let's ignore the ridiculous fees that will come with that entry and exit fees yeah absolutely just on the interest rate that's a 50 percent increase in your monthly interest costs now, I don't know many landlords increasing their rents by 50% to cover their cost, that cost. So what you're seeing, the margins are, are really coming down. Whether that's going to lead to prices coming down or whether incomes are going to go up for everyone proportionally to cover 
cover that, I don't know. But what I do know is there's always a lag for sellers to kind of get their expectations in order of what the market's doing. And it's very difficult for sellers who have got maybe debt in place at three and a half percent on a five year fix that they did before to understand actually someone buying it is not going to have that three and a half percent debt figure. They're going to have it at sort of five to six percent. And that's where they need to kind of expectations need to be met. It's very, very tricky. And there's always a big lag and it's whether or not the market can rebound enough between that lag price of transactions going down. So it is very easy to say that, yeah, that we will be seeing an increase in rents, but that's very dependent on area as well, especially if you invest throughout the UK. Mm-hmm. There are certain pockets of the UK where you can't rent for more than X because it'll just stay empty. Because yeah. that particular area, those tenants can't afford, just physically can't afford to pay that amount of money. So there's always that to contend with as well. 100%. I mean, like, we've got to talk about the regulation and tax because it is a big issue. And like we have seen that 500,000 properties on the rental sector sell up. And that's not just sell up. That's we've lost those from the rental sector. So those are no longer being rented, those properties. So it's not like another investor's come and bought them and they're renting them out. It's They are lost. And at the same time, we've talked about the amount of families and individuals that need to rent and that going up because when homeowners buy a home, it actually increases the amount of people that want to rent. That All that's doing is it's driving more people onto these social housing waiting lists which over now it's 5 million individuals, over 5 million individuals are on the waiting list for social housing, which is insane. Yeah, I think it's around about 2.5 million households. So that is absolutely bonkers. Now, unless you have a big stock of properties, I mean, you need to really use the carrot, don't you, for, for, for landlords to encourage them to start renting to back to the councils and things like that. And goodness we're hearing stories of kind of councils spending an absolute fortune on short-term housing for homeless i mean you would have thought homery would have been doing all right at the moment wouldn't you but <laughs> clearly not and um, so i mean and look councils haven't got the greatest reputation of being financially savvy either just go and speak to the people down in croydon so i think it is concerning i mean they've done they've looked at the prs again i think from the nrla did a pretty good kind of uh, report as well, where they said one in three landlords are planning to cut the size of their portfolio this year. Just 9% of landlords said they plan to increase the size of their portfolio. 14% who said the same the year before. So that's ongoing. People starting now to start to cut in and people are not coming into the market enough because they're looking at the returns really and the tax implications yeah. and what they end up in their back pocket alternatives. even those i mean there are business owners who i've worked with for, for years who sold up and have cash to deploy and the only reason they would ever put it into a buy to let is because they just don't want it sat in an isa or a bank account that's almost like the equivalent to them that's how they see a buy to let it's just a bank account they don't think it's sexy they don't really think it's very creative they don't think it's very lucrative in fact they think it's probably one of the worst investments they could make um from a returns perspective and now it almost feels like those margins are squeezed even further So I kind of feel that that is ultimately where we are at the moment, unless you are really passionate about what we do, like, you know, we are, then 
I don't think there is. Oh, look, there's, probably, there's not many that want to come into the market. Yeah, I mean, it's much easier if you're in the market and all these mm. barriers to entry have been put up. Yeah. It's quite a good place to be because Absolutely. you can start to pick up a bit more market share. Barriers to entry, although no one likes them in the short term, can be quite good in the medium term for people who are already in that market. But yeah, I mean, another point that got raised is some of these properties that are then being sold by landlords wanting to leave the market are being bought up by people or other investors who are then looking like, how can I make this work? Well, maybe we're going to have to look at short-term rentals, things like that, because a standard AST just does not not work um, financially for us. So these things might be happening. I don't think that's bigger deal as kind of some of the other other factors but it's certainly one i mean you get some people saying oh it's okay because these build to rent institutions will start to pick up stuff i mean the average average time (laughs) from build to rent to get a tenant in there is about seven years and the proportion of the market that they actually have is under five percent of the rental market so i mean we're just so far away from build to rent being meaningful in the UK. Don't get me wrong, in other countries, it's, it's very good. But we're just so far away from that actually making a meaningful difference that it's almost non-applicable to even discuss it. Yeah, uh, Alicia, any other things that you would like to discuss or what would you like to see happening in the news next week in terms of property? What do you what are you hoping that some of these news stories are going to are going to go into? It's funny, isn't it? I think I'd like I would like to see less landlord bashing. <laughs> and I think there needs to be more accountability from the individual's perspective as well. I mean, as individual landlords, you know, part of good communities like we are, like partners in property, you know, there are some really good people doing really good things. And there isn't enough of that in the headline news. Um, you know, there's good news stories every week in that community that you know inspire me. I love to hear it. And I think, you know, if, if there was more of that being published publicly and what more widely then I think you'd see a change or at least a, a more of a balanced opinion from public from landlords um, and from tenants I think I think that's the bit for me I'd love to see more of in the news is the good stuff but then the good stuff doesn't always style the papers does it well, so. exactly um, do you want to just tell everyone when those meetings uh, those networking meetings at partners in property are and, and we'll put a link for anyone that wants to in the show notes as well. Yeah, absolutely. So I host Manchester and that's always the third Friday of the month. Um, I think Birmingham's the first Friday, then Bristol, second Friday, London third. No, we're third and then London last Friday of the month. Uh, Thursday, actually. Sorry, Thursday. Fantastic. So the hosts are fantastic people and they're just normal, regular people who are just trying to make a difference for their families and equally allow um, to provide excellent housing for other families as well. That's the whole point. Of, for me, that's the definition of a landlord. It's, Absolutely. It's a win-win. And, and it's not just landlords, it's developers as well. And, and Yeah, I was at the Birmingham one last week speaking, and it's a great, it is great, it's in the day. Yeah. So you do get kind of the calibre of people there are, are full-time in yeah. property. You get some obviously great speakers, but also great people in the room and the yeah. contacts you make. And I know there's lots of people that do business together and it's always good fun. So highly recommend if you are in any of those areas, London, Bristol, Birmingham, Manchester, pop along to one of those meetings, try them out, see what you think. They are great. Alicia, I can't let you go without... 
getting you to tell everyone about the property business retreat that we went on is 2021 I think yeah it is it's like 18 months ago so so we'll be doing this again in in October it's a week long it's pretty intensive it's sort of seven days of us taking apart your business and building it back (laughs) up in in the nicest possible way do you want to kind of can oh please give us a plug if you can yeah no I do you know what I think it's such a great program you three between you all have a different skill set and that really complements the whole week but it's not for someone who just wants to turn up and get all the answers. That's not what you guys do. I think they need to be open to the advice. They need to be open to the criticism. Uh, but equally, they need to be able to and willing to be a- actionable on what they're accountable for. Mm. Um, and ultimately, you come away there with a plan. But if you can't action that plan, there would be no point even turning up on day one. Yeah. So for me, it was just a great chance to meet everybody. At, we were with a great group that year and... You know, it was a really good blend of personalities. And I just had a lot of fun. To be honest, it wasn't really about the work. Like the business thing kind of took a back seat. That was more about just having a bit of a laugh and and just enjoying everyone's company and being inspired by other people who were doing different things at different levels. And then you kind of came home and then focused on the business with the plan that you had. Um, But you were, you know, revved up for doing um, for doing more in your own business once you'd been around people like that. So, yeah. I loved it. Look, it's it's a lot of hard work, but clearly <laughs> yeah. your, your testament that it's that it works because your your business oh, is yeah. fantastic Thank at the moment. You. All credit Thank to you, you. Um, Alicia. Thanks so much for joining me today, and we'll hopefully have you back on the podcast again soon. Yeah, love to. Cheers. Thanks.